Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 21, The Crash. It all happened so very suddenly. In early 1991, Japan was the second most powerful economic force on Earth, and on track to pass the United States within a few decades. Already, the talk was that the 21st century would be the Japanese century, and self-congratulation was the flavor of the day in Tokyo. One year later, it was clear that something had gone wrong, though no one knew at the time quite how badly. Everyone thought this was just a blip on the radar, and soon things would get back to normal. Today, Japan is still struggling to get clear of that blip on the radar. The current Prime Minister, Abe Shinzo, has tacked his career to his plan to get Japan out of the economic slump that began in 1991. So what happened? After all, things were going so well. To get the answer, we have to go back to 1971 and the final full year in office of Sato Eisaku. The Japanese system of exports, like we talked about last week, was underpinned by the willingness of the U.S. government to allow American industry to have its butt kicked in exchange for keeping Japan in the U.S. orbit during the Cold War. In particular, in the 1960s, the Japanese used their relationship with the United States to justify keeping their currency artificially weak, making Japanese goods extremely cheap in the United States. The whole system is a little Byzantine, but the basic idea was that after World War II, the United States set up a global financial system referred to as the Bretton Woods system, designed to create a stable global financial structure in the wake of World War II and prevent another Great Depression. We don't have to worry about the minute details of that system here. All we have to know is that part of the system allowed Japan to keep its currency very weak in order to protect its economy and stimulate exports. This program had been included in the original formulation of Bretton Woods since it was drawn up during the occupation. It was felt that the Japanese economy would need extra protection in order to keep it functional after the disaster of the Pacific War. By the 1970s, however, it was clear that the Japanese economy did not need this kind of protecting anymore. The American president, Richard Nixon, saw a chance to bolster his popularity, and demanded that Sato Esaku rein in the Japanese firms operating in the U.S., which he said were not competing fairly. When Sato hesitated, Nixon announced that he would be unilaterally ending the Bretton Woods system. In addition to finally taking the United States off of the gold standard, the end of the Bretton Woods system removed the fixed rate of the yen vis-a-vis the dollar. Of course, Nixon's reasoning wasn't just about Japanese competition in the United States. He also had to deal with a war in Vietnam that was burning through America's cash supply like nobody's business and further weakening the U.S. economy. Removing the gold standard enabled the government to print more money, causing inflation, but also keeping the American government fiscally afloat. The end of Bretton Woods initially caused panic in Japan as the value of the yen went up and the price of Japanese goods began to increase. While the move in no way removed Japan from the U.S. market, it did remove the easy source of cash that the 360 yen to one dollar ratio had provided. In fact, the fallout from this incident was what brought Sato Esaku out of office. But even this maneuver did not stop the Japanese push into foreign markets, it merely slowed it down. The yen did gain in value, but the Japanese government used a series of economic tricks that we don't really need to get into in order to keep it from increasing too much. 
At this point, it's worth going over again why weak currency would be good. After all, weak things are bad, right? Not necessarily. A weak yen essentially means that you can sell Japanese goods more cheaply abroad. For example, if a radio costs 10,000 yen to produce and ship to the United States, a rate of 300 yen to $1 means you need to sell it for more than $33 to make a profit. A ratio of 200 yen to $1 means that you need to sell it for more than $50 to make a profit. And after all, if you want to sell things, they should be cheap so people will buy them. By the way, those of you who live in the United States might remember the kerfuffle back in the 2012 election about China being a currency manipulator. For a long time, China has used the exact same trick of keeping its currency, the renminbi, artificially weak in order to stimulate its exports. Part of the reason China has hesitated so much on giving in to American demands not to manipulate its currency was what happened next to Japan. The Americans, fed up with Japan's artificial weakening of its currency, decided to intervene and force the Japanese to strengthen the yen. The American government was partially spurred by rising popular discontent with a security arrangement as well. As Japan grew stronger, fewer and fewer people in the U.S. saw taking an economic beating at Japan's hand while paying the majority of Japan's defense costs as worthwhile. In addition, the Japanese Prime Minister Nakasone Asahiro had a good working relationship with the American President Ronald Reagan, and was known to be sympathetic to the idea of returning Japan to a more activist stance. Seizing the chance, America pushed Japan and the German Federal Republic into signing the Plaza Accords in 1985. Basically, the agreement gave America some favorable trading rights in both countries, and in Japan put limits on currency manipulation in recognition of the burden the U.S. was shouldering in defending both countries from the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. The Plaza Accords represented a pretty big problem for Japan's leadership, though not a big enough one that they felt they could avoid U.S. pressure to sign it. Without the favorable system they'd been operating under, Japanese firms would have to change how they competed in order to continue their trajectory of growth. In fact, the yen began to rise as a result of the Plaza Accord, causing a small recession. Things were looking pretty bad. But at this point, the Bank of Japan stepped in to save the day. In an attempt to shore up the economy, the Bank of Japan dropped interest rates down to practically nothing. So what does this mean? The point of this maneuver was to replace the money that used to come in from raking in cash in the U.S. market with extremely cheap borrowed money. If you think of the Japanese economy as an engine that runs on the constant intake of money, this was essentially swapping the fuel from export earnings to cheap credit. So what does that mean? Well, interest rates are the amount of money, either on an annually or monthly level, that you have to pay back as interest on a loan. If you borrow $100 at an interest rate of 10% per month and pay it all back one month later, you owe $110. However, at an interest rate near or at zero, you either have to pay back very little extra or no extra at all. This meant that companies could borrow money in basically unlimited amounts to finance their operations. This massive influx of cash could be used to make investments that would generate more money, which could be used to pay back the debts, and then borrow more money, all of which would continue the stream of cash flowing into the economy and revive it. What would be a good money-making investment for this cheap credit? In Japan, the obvious choice was real estate. Land is very expensive in Japan, and there's not much of it. This is particularly true in areas like Tokyo, where high urban density meant there was not a lot of undeveloped area. 
Investors and companies expected the price of land to continuously increase. So a massive scramble to buy up real estate and then make money off of the growth in its value began. This scramble drove the price of real estate through the roof. Because of the low interest rate, many companies went into huge amounts of debt to buy up land, on the theory that this investment was incredibly valuable, and that at any rate with the low interest rate there was no need to pay back the cost anytime soon. As a result of this real estate boom, Tokyo rapidly became one of the most expensive pieces of real estate in the world. In 1989, one square meter of the Ginza district in downtown Tokyo was worth $200,000. By some estimates, the grounds of the Imperial Palace in downtown Tokyo were worth more than all of the real estate in the entire state of California. Of course, these prices could not last forever, and even early on there were warnings that the price of real estate was getting out of control, creating what economists refer to as an asset bubble, when the price of something becomes artificially inflated and is eventually corrected back to a more normal level. The warning voices were few and far between, though. Land, after all, is always needed by someone, and barring any kaiju-related incidents, it's not going anywhere. Besides, the bureaucracy was too busy with self-congratulation, the LDP was paralyzed by pork-barreling and infighting, and the big businesses were blinded by the insane amounts of money that, at least on paper, they were making. The Bank of Japan, for its part, quickly realized that this could be a problem. After all, if for no other reason than because no one could afford them, real estate prices would have to go down eventually. When that happened, this system would go bust. Companies which had gone into debt to buy these valuable assets would suddenly find them to be worth less and less, which would prevent them from paying back their loans and destabilize the entire system. Clearly, the thing to do was to begin raising interest rates to stop borrowing and get the price of land to level off, though not to drop. However, political pressure on the banks caused them to delay this maneuver until 1991, as the people, in theory at least, making money off of this cheap credit didn't want to see the fire hose drying up anytime soon. When it was finally forced to act, the Bank of Japan raised interest rates up from around 0% to near 4% in the course of a few months. Going this fast was a terrible idea. It meant that the companies which were all in debt now had much more to pay off, since they had to worry about a huge increase in interest as well. 4% may not sound like a lot, but when it's, say, 4% of $400 million, it begins to add up. In order to keep their debts under control, companies began diverting all the money they could into paying their debts off. This caused the real estate market to dry up, causing the value of real estate to plummet. Since everyone needed the money from that real estate to finance their debts, this made everything worse. The bureaucrats were at the time paralyzed with scandal, the corruption in the bureaucracy just beginning to be exposed, and the various economic and financial divisions were unable to put together a coordinated response to their problems. Many of their members had just been embroiled in a bribery scandal that seemed to go to the highest levels of the leadership, and thus any maneuver they attempted to shore up the economy probably would have been discredited by virtue of association with that corruption. The LDP, meanwhile, was torn between those who wanted to see a massive stimulus package to revive the economy and those who felt the whole problem was caused by government interventionism and couldn't be fixed by more of the same. Bitterly divided and with the money it had relied on for the pork barrel politics that had kept it in power drying up, in 1993, the LDP finally lost control of the government for the first time since 1955. In 1993, an opposition coalition led by the socialist Hosokawa Morihiro 
took control of the government. Hosokawa and his comrades walked into the government promising massive social, political, and economic reforms. They promptly found themselves paralyzed by a lack of funds to realize their ambition and the lack of a unified plan, and squabbling between the coalition members broke out within a matter of months. Hosokawa's cabinet lasted a few short months before being brought down by a scandal. His successor as head of the coalition, Hatatsutomu, was forced to resign after the socialists walked out of the coalition, and Hata was followed up by Moriyama Tomiichi, whose government managed to survive for one whole year before being brought down in the general elections. Hosokawa, though, is noteworthy for getting one thing done. He was the prime minister who issued a statement calling World War II a war of aggression on the part of Japan. Prime Minister Murayama followed this up in 1995 by officially apologizing for Japanese behavior during the war in a speech on the 50th anniversary of the surrender. His statement, taking responsibility for World War II, does remain the official policy of the Japanese government, though some hawkish politicians, like the current Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, have indicated a desire to recant it. In 1995, continued paralysis among the coalition, combined with a widely perceived failure to act effectively after the Kobe earthquake and the 1995 sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway system by the Aum Shinrikyo cult, resulted in the LDP returning to power. Having clawed its way back to the top, the LDP bravely went ahead with the same old direction, squabbling over what little money was left for pork barrel projects and fighting amongst itself. This time, though, the opposition was so divided that the LDP essentially won by default. For the remainder of the 1990s, the LDP would remain torn between more intervention and more deregulation, resulting in zigzags back and forth between the two policies that failed to actually accomplish anything. Even now, this remains kind of true. For example, Prime Minister Koizumi Junichiro worked hard to deregulate the Japanese economy on the American model, but after the 2009 crash in the U.S., the current Prime Minister Abe Shinzo from the same party has staked his career on his ability to use government intervention to restart the economy. In the social sphere, the economic problems facing Japan caused the veil to fall away from all the social issues we discussed last time. For your average salaryman, there was mass disaffection with the system. After all, these people had essentially mortgaged their lives for the benefits promised to them for their hard work, the solid pensions, the constant raises, the constant promotions, and the lifetime employment. Now all of that appeared to be in jeopardy. Those who already had good jobs clung to them, but many coming into the job market around this time were unable to find anything. Often they were stuck with temp work, in some cases having to move back with their parents. This is Japan's lost generation. The group that were promised the world if they just worked hard enough for it, and when they finally did, found nothing there waiting for them. Economic hardship also resulted in a lot of cases of delayed marriage and delayed childbirth, and as a result, Japan's already falling birth rate began to plummet. A falling birth rate is generally normal to a certain extent for an industrialized country. After all, you no longer need a lot of kids to help out on the farm, better medicine also means less child mortality, and raising kids in an industrial environment is much more expensive. However, Japan's fell unusually quickly. The falling birth rate created a further problem of funding pensions. Usually that's done through taxing younger workers, but suddenly there were fewer and fewer younger workers to tax. The lifetime employment system also added to the problem. 
Shifts in major industries that went on in the 1980s and 1990s, for example, the rise of the personal computer and the internet, fundamentally changed the dynamic of many markets. But Japanese companies couldn't respond to these changes because their lifetime workforce wasn't trained on the new technologies. Employing the lifers meant not hiring new people who did have that training. This created a sort of tailspin, where keeping guarantees of lifetime employment meant falling further and further off of the cutting edge of technology. Only a few newer sectors, such as the video game or cellular phone market, were able to avoid these issues by virtue of not having any out-of-date employees to deal with, since the fields were brand new. Now, though, you can see the same problems beginning to creep up in those fields, too. Despite having the technology to create smartphones as far back as the year 2000, NTT Docomo, the major cell phone company in Japan, didn't even consider the idea until the iPhone. And more and more you hear tales about how Japanese video game companies just keep doing the same thing, I'm looking at you Resident Evil 6, without ever changing or adapting to new expectations. The school system also began to suffer. The whole reasoning behind the insanely punishing test system was to secure a good spot at a good college in order to get a good job. But such a scenario was looking more and more unlikely every day. Faced with this, many students began to lose hope in the face of the intense pressure of the school system, as well as the intense bullying associated with parts of that system. The result was the rise of phenomena like toko kyohi, or school refusal, where students simply refused to attend class, or the infamous hikikomori, the buried, or those who simply locked themselves away in their rooms and refused to come out. In addition, as parents had to work harder and harder to make ends meet, with former housewives often taking up part-time jobs to supplement the family income, children often ended up, intentionally or not, somewhat neglected, leading to a rise in issues with classroom disorder and bullying. To give you an idea of how bad it's gotten, in 2011, a 13-year-old boy in Otsu, part of Shiga Prefecture, killed himself by jumping from the roof of his school after months of bullying. Reportedly, he was physically abused, forced to practice killing himself by his peers, and according to some reports, fed dead bees. His bullies even broke into and vandalized his room at home. The school system, by the way, is deeply invested in denying these problems and maintaining its wholesome image. The school of the boy in Otsu Prefecture denied for months that the student had killed himself as a result of bullying. It only admitted to the problem after the family of the dead boy sued the school for 77 million yen, around 7.7 million U.S. dollars. The national outrage surrounding this case resulted in the passage into law of a bill by the Diet this June, demanding stricter investigations into issues of bullying. The crash of the real estate market also caused issues for Japanese women. What few jobs there were for women and there were very few since it was assumed they would end up quitting to get married and raised kids, tended to get the axe first. However, as we discussed earlier, the money to get married and start a family tended not to be there as well. The social pressure to do so, though, didn't go anywhere. As a result, a lot of Japanese women were trapped between a rock and a hard place, unable to find a career job, but unable to find the financial security that would enable them to start a family in the manner that their parents' generation had. Now, all these problems might seem somewhat familiar to listeners from the U.S. An economic bust caused by the real estate market, from which recovery never really seems to come, causing massive upheaval in the social realm, leading to a series of intricately connected problems from which there seems to be no escape, with responses from the government ranging from paralyzed irresponsiveness to total counterproductiveness. 
A friend of mine in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs once told me a story about how, up until 2008, they would regularly get these gloating calls from American economists about how the Japanese model had clearly failed, and clearly Japan should just adopt wholesale the deregulated American model. Then for some reason, these calls stopped coming sometime around the fall of 2008. Of course, I can't possibly imagine why that would be. Japan's experience here can definitely serve as a warning to the United States. Given the similarity of the problems faced by both countries and the similarity of the responses, it's worth considering the idea that we could get similar results. Meanwhile, Japan continues to founder with no clear way forward, and only the potential promise that Abenomics, as Shinzo Abe's policies are called, might be able to fix things. It seems that Japan is doomed to wander in Asia dominated by China and the United States, unable to stand independently, and regain the power it once had. On the other hand, you never know how things are going to turn out for either the United States or Japan. Only a few short episodes ago, I was telling you all how back in the 1950s it was common knowledge that Japan would be a mid-ranked power in an Asia dominated by China, the United States, and Russia. We all saw how that worked out. You can never really be sure of these things. There's an old Taoist parable with a few different versions. This is the one I've heard. That, briefly paraphrased, goes like this. In a village, there was a boy and a Taoist master. The boy was given a horse as a gift by his father, and everyone in the village said, Oh, how wonderful for him! And the Taoist master responded with, We'll see. Then one day, the horse threw the boy from its back, and the boy was crippled by his injuries. Everyone in the village said, Oh, how terrible for him! And the Taoist master responded with, We will see. Then a war began, and the military officials came to draft everyone fit for service, but his injuries prevented the boy from being drafted. Everyone in the village said, oh, how wonderful for him, and the Taoist master said, we'll see. You get where I'm going with this. Maybe things will turn out well for Japan. Maybe they won't. Predicting the future is messy business. For me personally, I think we've seen Japan recover from the brink more than enough times to think that if anyone can do it, it's them. But I suppose, in the end, we'll see. Thank you all for listening this week. Just a quick programming note, this is the last of the outline episodes. I've been debating when to stop them, and I think this is a good point. There are more modern stories I'm interested in looking at, but they're pretty complex, and I'd rather devote entire episodes to them rather than just touching on them and then coming back around. So that's it for a brief summary of Japanese history. Starting next week, we'll be jumping between topics, beginning with our first listener-submitted podcast topic, The History of Bushido. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, and to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you all for listening. It's been a lot of fun, and I'll see you all next week.